Thank you, Paul, very much. Uh, I, know, I know I have been around for a number of years, but I can still walk up here under my own power. So anyway, it's a real privilege to have the opportunity to, uh, to be with you this morning. Chapels have been really challenging the last couple of weeks, as, as I'm sure you well know, and I'm sure your lives have been affected by them. And I'm very concerned that we really continue along the same theme that we've been working in the last couple of weeks. I think that you have had to have been challenged in the whole area of worship these last two chapels this week, Monday and Wednesday. When Dr. MacArthur talked to us about the source of worship, which is none other than God himself, the object of worship, which is the God who is both Spirit and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the nature of our worship, which is that we worship in spirit, that is, from the depth of our heart, and also in truth, that is, we worship in the prescribed way the Word of God sets it forth for us. And then Dr. MacArthur ended last Wednesday by giving us four keys to true true worship from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, that we are to worship in sincerity, that is, with an undivided soul, with fidelity and integrity, which is to affirm the truth, And then also with humility, which obviously comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, with a heart that is pure. That is, confession plays a major role in this whole process of worship. I want to kind of take a back step today and move maybe not really forward in terms of the Christian life, but maybe move in the other direction. You know, the purpose of salvation... The purpose of salvation is to produce worshipers. And as I said, therefore, before you can worship, before you can be a worshiper, you must be born again. Now, I believe that in this process of being born again, the Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, is both Savior and Lord. These two are inseparable. Turn, if you will, just very briefly to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you the message that Peter preached to the unbelieving Jews who were then converted. This is very important. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this is the culmination of his great message. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Savior. Now look at verse 37. I want to show you the result of preaching that message. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And at that point in time, 3,000 unbelieving Jews became Christians. Now, the message, however, that was preached was that Jesus was both Savior and Lord. Now, this is just not the message of the Apostle Peter. It's also the message of the Apostle Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And this passage has been used already a number of times in our chapel messages already this particular semester. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. 
Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, that is Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now my point is simply this. By the very fact that we ask his forgiveness when we accept Christ as Savior, there is also a submission process that is involved. That is, there is a recognition that he is both Savior and Lord at the time we accept him into our hearts and lives. Now, the problem today, young people, is this, that many professing Christians believe that you can be saved but have no desire to follow him or to submit to his demands on their lives. And the sad thing about this is that this view has slowly grown to where the line between the church and the world, at least in the eyes of unbelievers, is no longer present. I want to take a moment and read you a very interesting article that appeared in Newsweek magazine about a month ago. In Newsweek magazine, in their section on religion, they had an article about Christian music. Now, I want you to understand that you are getting here a perspective from an unbeliever. But I want you to see how these lines have totally been uh, wiped out between the church and the world in terms of the world's perspective. A tiny silver cross dangles from one earlobe. In his gray leather jeans, tight white muscle shirt, and oversized cotton jacket, singer Tim Minor looks every inch the rebellious rocker. Down farther in the article. Not turned on by old-time spirituals, evangelical youngsters are embracing what they call contemporary Christian music, played by flashy performers whose moves may be wild, but whose message is worshipful. The article goes on. Uh, last year, for example, contemporary Christian artists sold more than 20 million albums, and this is only the top of an estimated 400 million gold mine of records concerts and souvenirs, including T-shirts that bear such unsanctified mottos as sin sucks. There's a church circuit, the evangelical equivalent of the old Jewish borscht belt, where new performers try out their acts while established talents compete for Dove Awards, the Christian equivalent to Grammys. Increasingly, this evangelical music is crossing into the secular mainstream. The article goes on. Most evangelical artists record on Christian labels like Sparrow and Word and are sold through Christian bookstores. But Secular, A&M recently signed an agreement, A&M Records, with Word, in which A&M markets Amy Grant through general market stores and other big-time record companies are also eyeing Christian artists. Now they talk about the crossover effect of this music. In Grant's pop psalm called Open Arms, for example, she croons, your love has taken hold, and I can't fight it, keeping it unclear whether or not the lover is Jesus. At the Estes Park concert, Britain's Sheila Walsh, who has her own BBC television show, artfully mixed the sacred and the sexy, emerging from clouds of machine-made smoke on a darkened stage at these concerts. There are no drafts of marijuana fumes, however. Walsh held her arms out, 
to form a shadowy crucifix. But when the beat quickened, bright light suddenly revealed a strutting waltz in shiny white spandex pants, an oversized white shirt, white, glo- white lace gloves, and glittered hair. Her message was arresting, too. Songs of troubled marriages and fear of nuclear war. Well, the article goes on and on. Now, what's my point? I am in no way questioning the sincerity of the people that are involved in this. What I want you to understand is that the line between the church and the world has totally been blurred. What is this secular person getting out of what they have just seen? Are they getting a clear picture of the fact that they're sinners and that they need to be saved and confess that Jesus is Lord? The answer is obviously no. Just this morning on television, I was watching the, the, uh, uh, the A&M show on, on, on Channel 7 with David Hartman. And they were discussing this whole issue this morning of the, of the drugs and athletics. And one of the guests was Hard Cosell. And Cosell made what I thought was an unbelievable, accurate statement about what's taking place in America. When David Hartman asked Cosell, why are we having all these problems in sports? You know what his answer is? There is no definable moral center in America anymore. Now, that is an unsaved Jew remarking about what he sees in America today. Folks, listen to me. There is no moral majority in America. That is not the case. Christians have become so ghettoized and are so used to hanging around other believers that all they do is take what they believe and transfix it out in the world, and they believe that's exactly what the rest of the world is like. And all it's going to take is some Christian to go out there and mobilize this force. That is not the case, folks. There is no definable moral center in America anymore. Now, if Jesus is Savior and Lord, the Bible teaches that a certain kind of lifestyle will follow. And that's what I want to zero in on this morning. That was all introduction, okay? Go to 1 John chapter 2. Really, 1 John chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. 1 John chapter 1. Now, when you study 1 John, you need to understand what the theme of the book is. The theme of the book is fellowship centering around that great doctrine of assurance. How can I be sure in my own heart that I am a believer, that I am really saved. And John deals with that issue over and over and over again in his first epistle. Now, let me begin with a basic premise that he lays down in chapter 1, verse 5. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 John. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. Now, you underline this next phrase. God is light. That is a defining characteristic of God's personality. God is light. And John goes on to to reiterate and even use a double negative, that in God there is absolutely no darkness of any kind. All right, that's the basic principle. Let's go on. I want to take you through these next verses very quickly so I can get over to the main text. Now look at verse verse 5, then the major principle is God is light. Now look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, this is a person that professes to be a Christian, and walk in darkness, what are we? We're liars. Pretty strong, isn't it? And do not the truth. Now, what's my point? What John is saying here is simply this, that if we profess to be Christians, and yet we're walking in darkness, what are we? We're liars. Now, let me explain something about 1 John so that you'll really understand how he's moving here. 
In 1 John, the author uses what are called present continuous verbs. That is, John is talking throughout this book about lifestyle and habits of life. That's the basic idea. As a, as a habit of life, if a professing Christian says he is walking in the light, but in reality he's walking in darkness as a habit of life, what does John say that he is? He's a liar, okay? Now look at verse 8. He goes on. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's he mean there? He simply means this. Because we are, as a habit of life, walking in the light, the question is, does this mean that we are free from the flesh? And what's the answer? No. There is still a role for the flesh. We still are going to sin. We're still dealing with that fleshly nature, although we have the new nature inside of us. Okay? Let's go on. This, now, this should be a great sense of hope and support for those of us who are believers. We still have to contend daily with the flesh. Now look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, now what's the difference? Here John is talking about a believer that says, I, once I am saved, I will never ever again commit any sin. What does John say about that person? He's also a what? Why? Because the word of God says, it's because you're saved doesn't mean you won't sin, right? Now the issue is simply this. Kids, keep this in mind. We're talking about lifestyle. All right? That's the basic idea. Now go over to chapter 2, verse 3. Now we're going to see some of these tests about being able to make the judgment on our own if we are really true believers, if Jesus is really Lord and Savior. Now look at verse 3. And by this we do know that we know Him, have an experiential relationship with Him, if we what? Keep his commandments as a habit of life. That is, there is a desire in our life to keep our Lord's sayings, to keep those things that he talked about in the Gospels. Now look at verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and here's a false profession again. He that saith, I know him, and as a habit of life does not keep his commandments, what is he? He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Look at verse 5. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is God's love perfected. That is, God's love continues to grow in that person's life. That's an outgrowth of keeping his commandments. And by this, we as individual believers can have confidence, what? That we are where? In him. Now look at verse 6. He that saith he abideth... Here's another false profession. He that saith he abideth in him ought also even so to walk even as he walked. Okay. False profession is in the next verse down. But the point is, if we're abiding in him, how are we going to walk? As a habit of life, we're going to walk as who walked? As Jesus walked. Okay, look at verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. Another idea here is simply this, that if you as a habit of life are a believer, what is going to be your normal relationship to other believers? You're going to what? You're going to love them, right? Okay, now look at verse 9 again. I'm sorry, verse 11. But he that hateth his brother is in what? Darkness, and walketh in what? Darkness, and knoweth not where he goeth, because darkness hath blinded his eyes. Now, young people, listen to me. You see, we're not talking about relative things here. We're talking about light and darkness and a habit of lifestyle. 
And John says, as a Christian, you can look at these, as a professing Christian, you can look at these things in your life, and if you are a true believer, this will give you great confidence. If, as a habit of life, you're doing what? You're loving your brother, you're walking as he walked, you're walking in light. Okay? Now, we go on in verses 12 to 14, and we see that this applies to all levels of Christian growth. But what I want to zero in on this morning is what we have in verses 15 to 17, because I believe this is where the subtle problem comes in. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. What form of reality does the darkness take? Okay. What form of reality does this darkness take? And I believe we have that for us in verses 15 to 17 of John chapter 2. Listen to these words. Let not the world, neither the things that are in the world, or love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is what? And once again, what are you talking about here? You're talking about habits of life. You're talking about lifestyle. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of what? The world. And the world someday is going to what? pass away, and the lust also is going to pass away, but he that doeth as a habit of life, the will of God, what? Abides forever. Now, young people, listen. I believe that temptation always comes within this context. Satan uses the existing world culture combined with our own fleshly nature to keep people in darkness. Okay? That's what Satan uses. And you see, the problem is this. The problem is that unregenerate, unregenerate people love darkness rather than what? Than light. Now, let's take a real close look at this passage and see what we can learn from this. And my goal this morning, young people, is to once again have you walk out of here with, with that great assurance that you truly are born again and that Jesus truly is your Savior and your Lord. Verse 15. Love not the world. The idea of world there, you, if you wanted a modern term for it, it would be the word, a word like the establishment. Okay? It's the center of, all, of where all knowledge and all worldly wisdom comes from today. Uh, I always like to think that if I want to really find out, and I've shared this with some of our students before, if I want to find out what the quote-unquote American establishment thinks on any issue, I read Time magazine. Because Time magazine is the establishment's magazine. Okay? That will tell you exactly what the opinion makers are thinking about in religion, what they're thinking about in education, what they're thinking about in politics. You can get it all right there. It's the conventional wisdom of this age. Now, as we look at the, as John looks at the establishment, he does not leave us to our own opinions about this establishment. He says this entire world system fits into three great categories. And what are they? We see them in verse 16. For all that is in this establishment, the lust of the flesh. What's he talking about when he uses a phrase like this? Let me see if I can put it in a modern context for you, if I might. I think probably the bottom line to lusting after the flesh could best be summed up in the term selfishness. 
That is, everything that you do is motivated by number one. Everything you do. Your relationship with the opposite sex is what you can get out of it. Your relationship with your teachers is what you can get out of that. Purpose of being here at college is what you can get out of it so you can get a better job someday and make more money. Selfishness, okay? You could take any of these forms, any of these indulgences, sex, food, warmth, sleep, luxury, sensuality, thick carpeting, fine dining, any of these things. And all those things in and of themselves could be a blessing from a generous God. But when ardently sought for themselves, rather as a gift from God, they reduce us to a state of slavery. You know, all you have to do is read some of current evangelical literature. If you don't believe this, go over to the bookstore, go over to the cornerstone. You can find books on everything relating to this topic. You know, how Christians can have better sex, how they can make more money, uh, how they can be healthy. On and on and on and on. And the whole idea is, is what can I get out of Christianity? It's number one. Okay? How about lust of the eyes? Well, obviously, I think in our context, materialism is the best term for that. Cars, gardens, paintings, clothes, jewelry, vacation cottages, exotic settings for Christian conferences. All these things could be gifts of a generous God. But when they come to the level that they become the necessities, then it is lust. We worship them. And you know what happens, young people? Listen to me. In all these areas, what happens is these things end up controlling you. One time, I, some years ago, I was reading Malcolm Muggeridge's autobiography, his first, the first volume. And Muggeridge was talking about watching a typhoon in India. And he remember when the typhoon hit that the Indians who had very little material things, they just packed everything up into a little bag and went to higher ground. Then I thought about just recently the hurricane down in Louisiana. People loading their pickups up with their TVs and their VCRs and all the material stuff that we have. And I wonder, really, who really has a better sense of what is really important. Lust of the eyes. You know, Solomon said in Proverbs 27, the eyes of men are never what? Are never satisfied. Well, what about pride of life? I think the idea here is the idea of worldly security. That is, we have pride and confidence in who we are and in what we possess. It's the idea that I never need anybody else to minister to me. I don't have any needs. I can do it all myself. And unfortunately, what we call rugged individualism in America, really, I think in many ways, has been a hindrance to the body of Christ really understanding the mutuality of relationship that we have with other believers. And at many times, it's cut off the very openness that we need to have in terms of having other Christians minister in our lives. Worldly security. You know, we have forged our possessions into chains that bind us. You know, if you don't believe this sometime, drive down to Beverly Hills and drive around some of those gorgeous areas. You know what you'll find? You'll find walls 12 feet high. You'll find big, huge gates. You'll find guard dogs. You'll find alarm systems. And the question you ask yourself is, who is a prisoner of whom? 
I mean, what in the world is going on? When our lifestyle literally dominates the way that we live. And as Dr. MacArthur has already said in the first week, you know, all you have to do is look at what you see on Christian television, and that's exactly what you see over and over and over again. Christianity is stuff. It's acquiring. God owes it to us. You know, young people, this really affects us, too. It affects you. Because if you're living as a habit of life in these areas, then you're probably here for the wrong reason. You know, you're probably here to get a good education so you can go out and get a good job, marry a nice guy or gal, make 50000 a year, have a nice vacation. See, that's not the issue at all, young people. The issue is, for the Apostle John, if these things control you as a habit of life, the issue is not carnality. The issue is salvation. You understand that? That's exactly the thrust. John is talking about here, in verse 15, the issue of our position. We are not to love the world as a habit of life. And the issue is this, young people. If selfishness and materialism and worldly security dominate your life, the question you better ask yourself this morning is, am I really born again? I've heard Dr. MacArthur from time to time preach on the subject of decisional Christianity. It's really one of the negative fallouts of evangelism in the 20th century in America. Let me explain to you what I mean. When evangelism takes place in America, the key many times is that decision, that point of decision. When a person walks an aisle, goes into a back room, is counseled, and then from that point on, many times, people look at that date and go back to that and kind of justify that as the fact that they're, re that they, that they're really born again, when in reality, maybe there's absolutely no fruit of any kind in their lives. When I was a young teacher here, way back in the early 70s, it's kind of a fog in my mind today, but as I go back to that time, I can remember sitting in my office and having a young man who was a senior at this institution come in to see me. This young man was not only a senior, he was a biblical studies major headed for the ministry. This man came into my office, the second semester of his senior year. He came into my office and began to talk and totally broke down in front of me. You know what the problem was? This young man had no assurance of his salvation. You know why? Because all he knew his whole teenage life was that his mommy kept telling him that at the age of four, he went forward and accepted Christ. That's all he had going for him. He couldn't even remember doing it. Now, the young man was really saved. All we had to do was to go into this passage, and I pointed out to him that he had the right desires and he had fruit in his life, and that, God, that, 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 that he was concerned about winning people to Christ and was concerned about growing in the Holy Spirit. But you see, that young man, because he had been taught a false idea of the whole issue of assurance, had doubted his assurance for years, because all he had was the, was the fact from his mother that little Marky had walked an aisle when he was four years old. I'll tell you the sadder side, young people, is that there are some of you sitting out here right today that that's all you have going for you. 
when you look into your life, when you look at your lifestyle, you aren't walking in the light as a habit of life. You're not walking as he walked as a habit of life. You don't love the brothers as a habit of life. And the question I pose to you this morning is simply this. You need to go back through the power of the Holy Spirit as he convicts you and deal with that issue of Jesus being Savior and Lord. Look at verse 16. We've already read it once. And I want to point out here the issue of the source of this problem. Now the things of the world here do not come from the Father, but they come from the world. And as I said in my opening remarks, you see, Satan uses, Satan uses the world system to keep you from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he uses the world system to defeat you as a believer. You know, we need to really be careful in this area, even as believers. There's no way if we operate as salt in this world, if we're out among them, so to speak, we are really going to feel the pressure of compromising with a worldly society. There's no way you can get around that. There's no way I can get around it. And Satan comes at all of us at our point of weakness. Some of you, it might be the whole issue of morality and sex. For some of us who are older, it might be the whole issue of worldly security. Being able to have, quote-unquote, all the things we think we deserve and our family desire, deserves. Satan will always come at you and use the world system to attack you at your point of weakness. And we need to understand that, that we're in a battle, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be affected by it. There's no way we cannot be affected by it. You know, the desires created by advertising are going to have an effect on our lives. I'll tell you, I got, I've, got a, I've got a teenage son. I'm going through this whole clothes thing for the first time. I mean, that kid doesn't know what he wants to wear from one week to the next. I mean, he goes down to the store, and I think my wife has, go, has gone back down to the Galleria three times in the last two weeks. Why? Because he's being bombarded with all this stuff, and we're trying to have, a, we're trying to have good input into his life and bring him along. But he's still really struggling in this area. He's also really struggling in the area of music somewhat. And the battle's real. I'm going to tell you, you're all going to have teenagers someday. And you're going to have to go through the whole thing. And you better not forget what you went through. Okay? You know, it's a real, it's a real temptation, isn't it? We fight this battle every single day. It doesn't come from God, but it comes from the world itself. Last point, look at verse 17. The issue of eternity. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. It's going to be gone someday. But he that doeth, once again, present continuous verb, he that doeth the will of God, what? Abides for what? Forever. You know, the Christian is the person who is consistently and constantly practicing Consistently and constantly practicing the will of God. You know, what we need to develop, young people, is simply this. We don't have to fear what's out there. We have to understand that God has promised us He knows our needs better than we do. And we have to rest in the fact that He will meet our needs. 
that he will take care of us in terms of what our needs are in this world. You know, Paul talks about it in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 12, when he talks about the type of, of attitude that we're to have in this. In the, midst, in the midst of poverty, we are to have peaceful thoughts and we're to think on the good things. Well, I'm very concerned this morning that as we look at this text, that you see it in the broad context of this book. Young people, I'm not naive. I have probably read, out of this group right here, I have probably read 90% of all your professions of faith. It's easy to have the right vocabulary. If you've been raised in a church all your life, you can talk the lingo. You know what it takes to get in to this college. But the issue for both of you, for all of us who profess to be Christians, is simply this. Is our lifestyle characterized by walking in the light? Can you look at your life this morning and see some fruit of righteousness? At some time in your life, are you concerned about other people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? When you look at your life, do you see the development of the fruit of the Spirit? Is your life characterized by having the right attitude? That doesn't mean you don't sin. That doesn't mean you, do bat- you don't do battle in these areas. But basically, your heart is right. Do you keep His sayings as a habit of life? Is that your greatest desire? Even though you slip... Even though you fall into sin from time to time, is that deep heart desire to walk as he walked? Is your lifestyle Christ-like? Is your lifestyle characterized by loving other believers? Hey, we all still contend with the flesh. Absolutely. We all still sin. That's true. And that should bring solace to your heart, young person, this morning, that you will do those things. But you can still look at your life, and as a habit of life, you can see a commitment there to Jesus as Lord and Savior. I trust that really gives you assurance, young person, this morning, as to your salvation. But what I'm really also concerned about this morning is maybe there are some of you who are professing Christians that have been living a lie. I know that's true. The faculty, the administration, we're not that naive. I can usually tell within four to five weeks where we're going to have problems in these areas. That is, those that came to this college with a profession of faith but absolutely show no, nothing in their lifestyle that gives evidence to the fact that they're born again. Now, my job isn't to judge, young people. And it's not my job and it's not our job to separate the wheat from the tares. That will be done when Jesus comes. But out of a heart of love, we do have the responsibility to confront you on this very vital issue of whether or not Jesus is Savior and Lord. But once again, and we're done, is your life characterized by walking in darkness this morning? You don't walk as he walked? You don't love the brethren? Let me ask you a question. In whose footsteps are you following? Is it Van Halen's? Is it David Bowie's? Is it Kareem Jabbar's? 
Is it Pete Rose? It could be anywhere. You know, one of the stories that really meant a lot to me as I was growing up as a young person, and Dr. MacArthur's father used to tell it very frequently, there was an old evangelist in America by the name of Gypsy Smith. Before Gypsy was converted, he was an alcoholic. And he took every single penny he had and spent it on alcohol to the detriment of his family. And one cold winter night, Gypsy had to have a drink. Just been a fresh snowfall. He left his home and he began to walk down to the bar. And all of a sudden he was cut up short when he heard the small voice of a little boy saying, Daddy, Daddy, wait for me. And when he turned around, he saw his little boy trying to walk in his daddy's footsteps. Young people, listen. That's the issue this morning. In whose steps are you walking? Does your life, your whole life, revolve around the world system of selfishness, materialism, and worldly security? Or are you walking as a habit of life as he would walk? Is Jesus really our Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to really share this tremendous text this morning. We thank you that the Apostle John does not deal in relatives, but that he deals in absolutes. And I just really pray this morning, Father, that you would help our dear young people really to be honest with themselves. And if they look at their lives this morning and they really do as a habit of life see a desire to follow you, oh, Father, just encourage them that their salvation is secure. And on the other hand, Father, if there are some here this morning who, as they really take an objective look at their life, they might say they're professing Christians, but as a habit of life, there's nothing in their life that would validate that. Oh, Father, help them at least, with the power of your Spirit, to ask this honest question, am I really born again? Oh, Father, we thank you for your work that you're doing in the lives of our young people right now. We commit the remainder of the day to you, in Christ's name. Amen. Dismissed.